life in the Spirit. So we're going to be doing some songs, talking about the Holy Spirit and who God is. It's going to be a good time. I'm Matt, by the way. I'm filling in for Victor. It's at Diego's wedding. Diego met his wedding this morning. So
us our announcements. Go ahead and take a seat, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Church in the Valley. We are just so glad that you are here to join us this morning and worship with us. Hope that you are having a good uh, new year so far. In case you don't know me, my name is Jonathan Rickert, um, and I help out the service teams here at Church in the Valley. Now, when you came in this morning, you probably received a program. If you could go ahead and pull that out, really appreciate that. Inside there is information about what's going on here at Church in the Valley. There's also a connection card. If you could fill that out, we'd actually really appreciate that. We really a way for us to know what's going on in your life. So I really encourage you, please put your name, uh, any information that's changed. If you're a guest, you can just put any information that you feel comfortable sharing with us. But we'd love to hear what's going on in your life. If there's anything that you need prayer for, please put that on so that we can be praying for you. Now, towards the end of service, or actually after service, you can go ahead and just drop that connection card. There's going to be some um, taupe, some kind of brownish brownish bins around the courtyard here. You can go ahead and just drop those in those. Um, if you have an offering that you want to give as well, you can put that in there as well. Now, if you're a guest with us, we also just want to thank you for joining us here this morning. And so we have a, a gift for you. It's a book called How Good is Good Enough? And you can go ahead and just pick that up over here at the table with the blue tablecloth. That's our resource table. Uh, you can also drop your connection card off there as well and any recycling that you have at the end of service. So again, feel free to just fill that out, put that in there. Um, if you're using our, our uh, website, www.civalhambra.com slash Sunday, there's also a digital connection card on there as well. Now, right now, during this time of year, even though Christmas is technically past, something that we do throughout December and January is we pull together a special offering just to commemorate the gift that God gave us in Jesus Christ by giving a gift to others. And that's our special Christmas offering. We collect that through January uh, 31st. And for that Christmas offering this year, our goal is to raise $20,000. So far, we have raised... Drum roll. 10473 so we are well on our way. And what that money goes to is it goes to both local and international ministries. Some of the international ministries, one is uh, Connection, which is a student ministry in Europe that's seeking to reach the students there with Christ. And we're also giving to a ministry in Central Asia. So that's just some of the international missions that we go to, as well as the Lottie Moon uh, missions. And then we give locally as well. So now this year, we're doing something a little bit special, which is our sister church, CIV Ontario Ranch, who we were planted out of, they just leased a building and they need to build out that building for a new space. And so they have to put together quite a bit of money to do that. So we are in a very nice financial position, which as a church, what we're going to do is we're going to match whatever is given this year towards our Christmas offering. So if we give $24,000 towards our Christmas offering. The church is going to give $24,000 to CIV Ontario Ranch towards their build out. So the more generous we are, which our church, by God's grace, is a very generous church, then we will be able to be continue to be generous with our sister church. Um, and actually, sorry, here's a list of the ministries that we're giving to. Um, you can see both globally and locally. 
Um, so again, we're going to be collecting that through January 31st. And so I really encourage you just to pray through how God might be calling you to give towards that and the opportunity that there is. So we're going to go ahead and sing a few more songs, and then we're going to have John come up and um, give us our message this morning. Thank you.
Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you. And I couldn't be here last week, so let me take this opportunity to wish you all a very happy new year. And I'm thinking about New Year's resolutions, uh, probably most of which are in this. If you're like any other group of people, most of your New Year's resolutions have already been broken. Uh, but uh, you know, maybe you lasted a few days, but uh, there's only one New Year's resolution that I can ever remember making, at least the only one I ever kept. And uh, and so I haven't got a very good track record on those things, but the one that I remember making was years ago when before I was a believer, and on New Year's Eve one night, when I was happened to be in a, a kind of Christian coffee house kind of, outreach place being witnessed to by believers and arguing like crazy that they were all wrong and uh, and trying to convince them that their faith was wrong but something was moving in my heart and my mind and I, I suddenly just became aware of the reality of God as I heard a young man give his testimony of how he met Jesus and so I made a news resolution you know, I'd always told myself, even when I was in my most anti-Christian, atheistic phase, I always told myself, if I ever do become a Christian, I'm going to be completely committed, you know, because I knew so many wishy-washy, half-hearted Christians that, uh, you know, I didn't want to be like that. So, and I made a resolution that night. I kind of started to become aware of the reality of God and you know, that somehow I had to make some decision about him. So my resolution was that this coming year, of that, that coming year, I would make a decision either entirely for or entirely against Jesus. And that was my decision. I, would have, I have a year to make that sort of that final decision. Now that took about half a year because I kept putting it off, as you do, uh, something momentous like that. And one of the reasons I finally gave in was I started to realize that even though I'd been resisting and running from the Lord, that the, dis the idea of finally deciding against God was impossible because I, not because I couldn't do it technically or physically or mentally, but because it wouldn't be authentic. It would be, I, I, I would become aware of the that he was there and said that for me to decide against him 
uh, finally and completely would be inauthentic. It would be against the truth and it wouldn't have integrity. And so the, my only other option was to surrender altogether to the Lord. That's what I did in July of that year. So that was my one experience of a New Year's resolution that seemed to work. <laughs> and, uh, and about the only one I've ever made. But there's something about the truth. Once it gets into your heart, gets into your soul, gets into your spirit, once the truth comes in and you become aware of it, We've got to face up to it. We cannot keep forever resisting and ignoring the truth. And we're going to start a series today on the Holy Spirit and on the work of the Spirit and in, in the church and in the world. And we're going to start in the book of Romans uh, in chapter 8. That's where we're going to go. And Romans is an interesting a book for all sorts of reasons. It's a wonderful book. Uh, Martin Luther thought this was the one you should memorize above all else. So, you know, we better get on with that if you haven't done that yet. And uh, <laughs> so, neither have I, sorry. But uh, he just, you know, it's a wonderful book. And it discusses really what's the problem of the world and what's the answer to that problem. It's actually written to a church where there's a bit of a division going on ethnically in the church, or churches in Rome, I should say, multiple churches, between churches that were Jewish or between groups that were Jewish and groups that were not Jewish, Gentile. And they were kind of drifting apart, and Paul is absolutely appalled by this. But the reason that they're drifting apart is, is kind of complex, but perhaps some people are losing a bit of confidence in the gospel. They're losing confidence in Jesus uh, and, and probably because they signed up to Jesus, you know, as Jews in the first century thinking that Jesus is God's Messiah, this is God's time for Israel and it's all going to be good from now on. And yet most of their fellow Jews uh, don't agree, their synagogue elders are in, in, are in opposition to their new faith in, in Jesus Christ, uh, you know, Israel Israel doesn't seem to be saved from anything. And, and so perhaps they started to lose a bit of confidence. And the Romans is written to give them hope, to give, it, to give them hope and say, no, it's the real deal. This is the true gospel, and it gives true hope, true salvation, and here's how it works. And what Paul is doing in Romans is, is giving a defense of, its, of the gospel in the light of two basic problems. One is apparently uh, Israel is not yet saved. And the second is the problem of suffering in the world. And we still face those issues today. How do we address those kind of things uh, today, you know, and, and with the gospel? So it's, a, it's a, a wonderful book. And then what Paul does is start off Romans by saying, he's saying in the first few chapters, look, Israel's problem is truly saved by the gospel, by Jesus Christ. But what is Israel's problem? You know? And of course, it turns out that Israel's problem is the same as the problem of the rest of the world. It's the problem that Paul calls sin. The sin, you know, in other words, the, 
the uh, selfishness in the human heart and life that resists what we know to be true and goes our own way. And that's, that's the issue that Paul is addressing. And that's much bigger than any other thing that has to be addressed. The problem of the world that the gospel addresses is, is, is the biggest problem, has to be addressed. It's the problem of sin and the death that sin leads to. And in the first few chapters, chapters 1 to 4, let's say, Paul is showing how Jesus solves the problem of the guilt of sin. That sin breaks the relationship between humans and God, alienates us from our Creator, separates us from one another, breaks down humanity so that we're all living self-centered, selfish lives, degraded, and going further into despair and under the judgment of God without hope in the world. And he shows how when Jesus, what God does through sending Jesus, his son, solves the problem of the guilt of sin that we can be justified, that is to stand before God forgiven and free from the guilt of sin. Chapters 5 through 8 then retell the same story, this time addressing not so much the problem of the guilt that sin gives us, if you like, that has to be overcome through the cross and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but looking at the problem of the power of sin. How do we overcome not simply the problem of the guilt that we can't stand before God as innocent, but only as sinful, and we need something to, to save us from judgment, which is, of course, Jesus. But chapters 5 through 8 talk about how Jesus overcomes the power of sin, the authority and the power of sin and evil to run our lives, to push us around, to the sin that we cannot on our own overcome. You see, for so many, they're looking for a, a solution to the problem of the world, but if you, get the, if you get your analysis wrong, you're going to get your solution wrong, right? So if you think the problem of the world is, is structural, then you're going to be looking for a political solution to that problem. And so you're going to invest your hope in politics. And, you're, and look, politics is you know, one of those necessary things, but it's not the answer to the problem of the world. If you think that the problem of the world is ignorance, then you're going to invest your time and your energy in knowledge, right? What Paul shows, for example, in Romans is that knowledge is not the answer. In fact, he, t he says that the problem of sin is a problem that people know what they should do and don't do it. You know, the ethical problem of the world is not so much that we don't know what the right thing to do is. It's the problem that we do know what the right thing is and don't do it. Yeah, maybe there's a few occasions when we have to really wrestle about what's the right thing, what's the right thing to do here or there. But that's the minority of our ethical problems. The majority of our ethical problems have to do with already knowing what's right and not doing it. That's what Paul says Gentiles and Jews 
are doing, Gentiles are resisting the knowledge of God that they have already in creation and their own conscience and then going their way. Jews have the knowledge of God given to them in the scriptures and they have resisted that. And Paul says that every one of them, they're all under the judgment of God without hope at the final judgment. And so it's Jesus who's our only hope for Jew and for Gentile. Some people think that education is salvation. I remember reading an article about a, uh, an Australian, I'm, I'm Australian of course, and so there's an Australian educational expert lamenting the problems of what the Australian education system was putting out. So after, if you start school in Australia at four, uh, full time, and you, you know, you're in there till 16 or something, and then many of course go on to college, and, and so people have this, you know, um, that sort of t uh, 12 years of full-time education is not doing the job. You know, it's not producing the kind of people that we want. So his, his answer was, let's have them start full-time education from the age of two. You see, the, you know, with the theory that if it's not working, do more of it, right? In fact, instead of actually assessing What's the reason it's not working? It's basically we just don't have enough of it. By the way, that's the typical reaction of almost anybody in their field of specialty is that we all think that what we are doing is the most important thing, or we tend to think that way, you know. And uh, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a Bible teacher. That's my gift and, you know, job and so on. So I tend to think, you know, what the world needs more teaching uh, because that's what I do. Other people, you know, it's just the way we are. Educationalists think the world needs more education. But knowledge is not the answer, whether it's scientific knowledge, ethical knowledge, educational knowledge, because the problem of the world is fundamentally not ignorance, even though education is important. Structure is important, but it's not, not the problem of the world is not going to be solved by changes in political structure because the problem of the world goes deeper than political or social structures. The problem of the world, Paul says, is sin and death. And so, the, so how is that going to be solved? And I said, chapters 1 to 4, Jesus solves the problem of the guilt of sin, which leads to, and that overcomes, and then of course, as a result of that, chapters 5 to 8, Jesus overcomes the power of sin. When we get to chapter 8, he finally is just going to break out in celebration of, look what God has done to solve the problem of the world, which, by the way, is our problem, my problem, your problem. It's the problem of sin and death. What has he done to do that? Now, there's a couple of caveats here. As we come through Romans, we get to chapters 6 and 7, and he says, just, we want to address a couple of issues that you might have. And remember, he's writing to a mixed Jewish and Gentile audience. And there are some people who think, well, hang on, hasn't God already done something about the problem of the world? At least for Israel, he's given us the law of Moses at Mount Sinai, He's given us, you know, and, and the law, and, and isn't that the answer? Perhaps if Israel's not being saved yet, maybe that's because 
we should be just going back to good old faithful law-keeping like Israel was always supposed to do. And Paul is saying in chapters 6 and 7, not even the law can solve the problem of sin. It certainly didn't do that for Israel. It exposed sin. It classified it. It categorized it. It made you aware of it. Didn't take it away. Didn't solve the power. Didn't break the power of sin and evil that for Paul works in, you know, in a way that really is a, a power that cannot be overcome on your own. So, but, but when we get to chapter 8, he's starting to start to celebrate. And we're going to see two things. That for Paul, God the Father's answer to the problem of human sin, whether it's structurally, educationally, scientifically, all those things, sin that, that corrupts all human areas of human existence, and in fact the whole of creation, the problem is solved by the sending of the Son and the sending of the Spirit, right? It's the sending of Jesus Christ, His Son, and the giving of the Spirit. And it's in this chapter we're going to focus on the gift of the Spirit. So starting with chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, freedom from sin and condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for believers. This is good news indeed. Now, by the way, when Paul says here, there's no condemnation for you, or if you're a believer today, he's not simply here talking about no feelings of being condemned. No, he's not simply talking about a feeling of guilt or something, although that's important, not, shouldn't be ignored. He's talking about no judgment no condemnation, no ultimate condemnation for believers. That is, they, do not, they no longer come under the judgment of God for what they have done willfully. That's really good news. You know, one of the, things, one of the other areas that has... Or, or one of the other answers to the problem of the world really begins in the late 1900s into the early 20th century where people, you know, with, with the rise of modern psychology, right? And again, I'm not, a, I'm not against psychologists. It's, it's a real thing. But people started to think that the answer to the problem of the world was psychology because the problem of the world in their mind is psychological. And for some of, the, some of those psychologists, not all of them, but some of them, the problem of the world is the problem of guilt. But it's not a guilt that's overcome by forgiveness. It's a guilt that's overcome by making sure you don't feel guilty. 
In other words, it's the feeling of guilt is a problem that religion has put on us, and we need to be free from that feeling of guilt and, and just be, you know, be uh, celebrate who you are and all your problems and everything and, and not, don't feel guilty. And, uh, and again, the problem of the world ultimately is not psychological guilt, although that's a real issue, but it's over, which is overcome by forgiveness and experiencing the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the problem of the world goes far deeper than kind of the guilt that comes from religious repression. The problem of the world is actually sin and death. And Paul says what the law of God could not even do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son. The law, he says in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death means the reign or the rule of sin and death. That is when that government was running the world or your life. But now the opposite of that, what sets you free is coming under a different law, coming under a different ruler, coming under a different authority. That's the law of the spirit of life. And he's called the spirit of life because he's the source of life. Even the law of God given by God to Israel as a gift, a good gift on Mount Sinai all those years ago through Moses has not solved the problem of sin because the law itself was weakened by what Paul calls the flesh, that is the tendency of humans to be self-incentered and sinful and selfish. It's the reign of sin that leads to death and the Spirit sets us free from the law or, or the rule of sin and death. Hallelujah. <laughs> the law could not rescue Israel from the power of sin, so God sent his own Son and the Son of God comes as a human, Jesus, as an offering for sin, where it says, where it says in our passage, sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. What does that mean? In the likeness of sinful flesh, that means the, in what we call the incarnation, what we just talked about at Christmas, right? God coming as a man in human body, living a human life, dying a human death, rising from the, the incarnation. And then when it says he's sending his son for sin, the Greek little expression for sin here, perihamatias, it's got to do, it's, it's really something that's used repeatedly in the Old Testament as translating the Hebrew for the sin offering. He's talking about Christ's coming as an offering for sin, that is, as a sacrifice for sin. In Jesus' flesh, that is, in Jesus' death on the cross, sin, all sin, including our sin, is judged and condemned. So sin is condemned, that is, judged and found guilty and punished, if you like, in the death of Christ. But for us, there is freedom from sin, praise the Lord, in verse 4, 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What the law intended, the kind of life that the law intended for Israel is now going to be lived out, not, not by walking according to the flesh, meaning according to our own sinful, selfish, self-centered ways, but according to the Spirit. Sins of power is overcome by the death of Christ and the gift of the Spirit. That's awesome. It's worked, it, and the, the freedom from sin and its power is worked out in us when we walk, according to Paul here, when we walk according to the Spirit and not the flesh. When he says walk, he means live, live your life, right? And so, next Paul's going to just say, well, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? and not in the flesh. And that's when we come to chapter 8, verses 5 to 8, the mind of the Spirit. Now, I'll read it according to... I'm reading from the English Standard Version here, but I want to come back to it in a moment and, and give you a couple of alternate translations. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, there's a distinction here between the, in the terms of the way we think. It's not necessarily all in your head, but what you think is really important, right? Let me just, however, provide a kind of alternate translation here where it says in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh. The word live is not there in the original Greek, right? It's those who are in the flesh. That's who they are. They're in the flesh. That's where you are, right? That is, who, who are in a state of living selfishly, self-centeredly, sinfully. And when it says they set their minds on the things of the flesh, literally literally here from the Greek would be think the things of the flesh and those who are according to the Spirit think the things of the Spirit. Verse 6 then, instead of, really, instead of reading this for to set the mind on the flesh is death, we should be thinking it, the thinking patterns, the way of thinking that comes from the flesh, that's death. The way of thinking that comes from the Spirit is life and peace. For the th way of thinking that comes from the flesh is hostile to God. In other words, Paul is not saying, stop thinking about the flesh, start thinking about the Spirit, right? He's not expecting you to think about the Holy Spirit 18 hours a day or whenever you're not sleeping, right? I've got to think about the Spirit, think about the Spirit, set my mind on the Spirit. That's not what he's saying. Likewise, he's not saying the problem is that you're thinking about the flesh all the time. The problem is a way of thinking that comes from our self-centered nature as opposed to a way of thinking that comes from the Spirit dwelling in us. And those are two options, right? Now, again, in this passage, Paul is not talking about a kind of dividing line in the Christian's personality. 
If somehow we're living a divided life, I've got my flesh side and my spirit side, right? And uh, my mind is split between, you know, my self-centered sort of sinful self and my, you know, spirit-led holy self. And somehow I'm in constant battle uh, with usually the flesh winning over the spirit. That's in fact not what Paul is talking about here. He's describing a world who carries on without the Spirit and differentiating that from people who are, who have the Spirit, who are led by the Spirit. Now, does it imply that we need to choose our thoughts carefully? Yes, it does, right? But it's not that we have to think about the Spirit all the time. It's thinking, a way of thinking that it's, comes from the Spirit. You know how important thoughts are, right? Because thoughts lead to actions and actions become habits and habits have consequences. Should I say that again? Right? Thoughts lead to actions, actions become habits and habits have consequences. And so thoughts are really, really important. But the way of thinking that Paul is calling the world to is a way that comes from the gift of the Spirit. It's not something you work up on your own. It's all about pleasing God, not ourselves. We see this in the text that we just read, right? And because he says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's amazing how so many people think that the point of life is to please ourselves. Even, dare I say it, in the American Declaration of Independence, right? Life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. That's what it's all about. You've got to, that's life's about pursuing happiness. Look, there's a sense in which that's true, right? But because true happiness is found in the Lord himself. But... So there's a narrow sense in which that could be true, but for many people, life is all about pursuing their own pleasure, their own happiness, their own self-wants and desires instead of being about pleasing God. Those who are in the flesh are not able to please God, and it really is about pleasing Him. Now we get to the next few verses, Romans 8, 9 to 11, and are now going to talk about the life of the Spirit. He says this, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through or perhaps because of his spirit who dwells in you. I just uh, that little perhaps at the end because there's a, a, an issue between manuscripts as to whether it's, he'll give life through the spirit or because of the spirit. Either way, it's good news. I'll explain. He's saying here, remember I said that he's not talking about a divided Christian who's you know, fleshly and spiritual and the flesh usually wins or something. He's talking about a division in the world. 
between people who are in Christ and people who aren't, people who have the Spirit and people who don't. And he says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of, God, of Christ or Spirit of God dwells in you. That's good news, right? The Spirit is the distinguishing mark of the believer in Christ. That you, in verse 8, verse 9, is emphatic. You, yourselves. Puts that right up front in the Greek. The way this is written in the Greek, it makes it very emphatic. You, but you, by contrast to other people, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, so long as the Spirit of God dwells in you. Remember, some of you might remember when we, we talked about Exodus 32 through 34, we got to chapter 33 there, and verse 16, we talked about the distinguishing mark of the people of God. It says, where, where Moses says to God, How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? The distinguishing mark of the people of God, Moses said to God, was the presence of God. The distinguishing mark of the believer is the Spirit of God the Spirit dwelling in you. This is what marks out a believer from anybody else on the face of the planet. You have the Spirit dwelling in you. And the, the indwelling of the Spirit is, is in fact the indwelling of Jesus Christ. It's Christ who lives in you through His Spirit. Even though death comes... Because of human sin, and we read that all the way back in Genesis 3, right? Where God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat the fruit of that tree, right, you're going to die. They eat it and death comes into the world. And death comes because of human sinfulness and sin. But the Spirit gives life because the Spirit is life. He is the Spirit of life. And, and so in verse 11, Paul tells us that the Spirit that's given to you is, the, is not only giving you life now, spiritual life, but he's guaranteeing your resurrection from the dead. Praise the Lord. Because the problem of sin and the problem of death go together, right? And so the hope that we have beyond the grave is not so much a heavenly, spiritually floaty kind of existence, the hope we have beyond the grave, the ultimate hope is when Jesus returns, will be raised from the dead in the new creation. And the Spirit is what is guaranteeing that resurrection to come, praise the Lord. In, verse, in chapter 8, verses 12 to 13, then Paul talks about how does that affect the way we live now. If we have the Spirit... So we're no longer in the flesh, but we're in the Spirit. If that's what marks us out in this world, if that's what helps us to stand, if that's what makes a difference between us, if that transforms us, if that is what makes us different, how does that affect the way we live? Verse 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according, according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you're going to live. So it turns out 
And we do have something to do, even though it's the Spirit's work in our life. And we have to, it's living by the Spirit. You have no obligation, Paul says, to the flesh. In other words, you don't owe it anything. You've given it everything already. Don't, go, don't give it anymore, right? You've given sin and selfishness. You've given it already everything, far more than you ever should have. Don't give it anymore. You owe it nothing. The, ob the implied obligation, though, is to the Spirit. And how do we live this life of the Spirit? Paul says, put to death the practices and the habits that come from selfishness and self-seeking. Well, how am I going to do that? I mean, that's, that's our problem, right? How do we put to death the practice and the habits that come from selfishness and, and, and self-seeking? And it's only by the Spirit but if you do this, you're going to live. I was thinking, there's so many things that I've had to, over the years, you know, deal with in my own life. And I, I, the one that came to me this morning is how this, the Lord dealt with this particular issue. Uh, it's just the thing, one of the things that really was most binding in my own life for many years. Uh, what we just call it self-pity, you know, just feeling sorry for myself. Self-pity is when you take uh, the emotional energy and that you expected to expend on others and you spend it on yourself, right? You take your emotional capability, the empathy, the sympathy, the love, the interest, the concern, the sorrow that you, you, know, you should be spending on other people and you spend it all on yourself. When you invested emotionally in your own problems so deeply that you end up spiraling inward like some whirlpool that goes into deeper and deeper depths. And I think that was something I was in for many years. And, uh, you know, anything happened to me, it's woe is me, right? just spent a lot of time thinking how, being sorry for myself. And, well, I got, it was the Holy Spirit who thoroughly convicted me of this. Just really showed me how horribly selfish this was. I did have some, the Spirit used some people to point this out in my life, which was helpful. I didn't like it at the time, but it was helpful, nevertheless. But what's interesting was that I had to come to a place of repentance from this to recognize that this practice, this habit, came from, not from, it was for selfish. It was, it was self-seeking, it was self-concerned, it was fleshly, it was entirely alien to the Spirit of God, to the self-giving Spirit of Jesus. And it had to be dealt with. And so... I had to repent of it. I had to confess it to other people and renounce it and be very aware if I ever first start to engage in that kind of practice again. That's just one example in my own life. But I will say, I won't say that I've never ever felt sorry for myself since then, but I will say that it was amazing how the Holy Spirit worked in me to overcome the habit of a lifetime in really in a short period of time because it was the work of the Spirit. It's by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. By the Spirit we overcome these things. 
Finally, chapters 8, verse 14 to 17, we'll just talk briefly about this section, which is talking about the children of God. You're going to live, he says, for, verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, in verse 14 then, it says we are sons of God by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit are those who have the Spirit and are led by the Spirit uh, in their new life to walk in the Spirit. Those people, he says, are sons. How does that work out? Because the Spirit you receive is the Spirit of Christ himself. The Spirit that you receive is the Spirit of adoption as sons, not a spirit of slavery. The Spirit actually brings into reality, let me explain something about the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit brings into present reality things that, strictly speaking, belong to the end times, to the end of the end. So, resurrection life, right? Deliverance from all sin, all of those things. The overcoming, you know, the Bible shows us at the end, there's going to be no crying, no pain, no tears, no sin. You know, all the sin and selfishness and the pain and the horror and the sickness and the death in the world, that's all going to be overcome when Jesus returns, right? The injustice, all the troubles of the world are going to be overcome. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit brings into the present reality a, a, a rich experience of the things that belong to the end even though it's not yet complete. And so we're living in this kind of in-between world, what theologians call the already-but-not-yet world, where we have, we have resurrection life already, even though we're still going to die. And we have spiritual life already, and we have victory over sin, even though we still sin from time to time. And so we have the guarantee and the initial experience of the, of the future new creation life already now through the Spirit. It's amazing. And so the Spirit brings you to adoption as sons, leading you to call, leading us to call God our Father. When we say, and he says, Abba, Father. The Abba there, that's Aramaic. Father, in, in, in our text from the Greek would be Abba, Pater, right? Fa He's giving you the Aramaic and the Greek, probably because Jesus used that expression. This was something that was treasured in the early church. We go back to Mark 14, 36, where Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says exactly that to the Father, Abba, Father. And I think that just became treasured as a way of talking to God intimately and closely as our Father. And we become children of God by adoption right? By adoption. And the Spirit makes us aware, according to verse 16, that we belong. It gives us assurance. We belong, it makes us aware that we belong to God as His children, and are therefore we get the inheritance. Now, by the way, 
The inheritance is something, if you're an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ, that's good. It means you're God's son or God's child. It doesn't mean you yet have the inheritance, right? The heir is someone who's still waiting, right? So Prince Charles is the heir to the throne of uh, Great Britain. He's got to, you know, he, but he's not going to get the inheritance until his mum dies, right? Until Queen Elizabeth dies. Then he gets the throne. If you are an heir of Christ, that's an incredibly privileged position. If you're an heir of God, I should say, and a joint heir with Christ, as the Scripture says, that's an incredible thing, but it's talking about something, still something we're still waiting for. The Spirit, then, gives us the present experience of our inheritance in a kind of preliminary way, in a way that is rich and true, but not yet complete. And the inheritance, the full inheritance, is still to come. Just like, you know, if you're in your family, if you have a, you know, you, your parents, uh, there's some inheritance there perhaps, you can experience some of it now, but you're not the full thing until in fact it's time to, for the heir to become the one who actually inherits. You know, one of my favorite uh, people in church history is John Wesley. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism and uh, tremendous man of God. And this is what he said about his own conversion experience. When he was, he said, uh, this was in Aldersgate in the middle of London back in the early 1800s. Sorry, early 1700s. He said this, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. You can see he'd been reading Romans 8. And John Wesley emphasized this wonderful thing that the Spirit gives us the assurance that we belong to God as his children and are therefore heirs. Little thing on the end of this passage though, if we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Whoa, hang on, what, I thought this was all good news talk. What's this business about suffering? That's next week. So what this is in terms of literature, uh, this is what literary people call this a tailhead link. That is, in, in ancient languages, like Greek, for example, which the Bible is written in, you, you, there's no, they didn't do things like underlining, heading, font, uh, bold, uh, italics. Uh, there's not even any spaces between words. They're just letters in columns, and they, you know, they just write them. And the, the way to distinguish one part of your text from the next is by what's written rather than by external things like size or color, stuff like that. And so what people do to, distinct, to tell the reader that they're going to move on to a next topic is by putting something at the end, quite often, of a section which wasn't really part of that section. It just leads the reader on and say, okay, now we're moving to the next topic. And so that's going to be here. It turns out that there's one more step to get from here to glory. And that's, we've got to make it through, you know, we, we've, got to, we've got to survive between now and then. And so that's what next week's about. And that's what we're going to read the next part of Romans 8 next week and talk about how the Spirit helps us even now to endure until Jesus returns. But for now... Let's just summarize. 
The Spirit is the Spirit of life. He's the one who gives life. And he is given to those who believe to give them spiritual life now and the guarantee of resurrection life to come. The Spirit's power in us is what overcomes sin and selfishness, what Paul calls the flesh. That's what's overcome by the power of the Spirit. And our obligation is to live or to walk according to the Spirit. And that's the transformed life that only Jesus can give through His Spirit. The problem of the world ultimately is not education, is not ignorance. The problem of the world is not politics and structure, is not sociology, is not psychology. All those things, by the way, are important and all of them are affected by the true problem of the world, the problem of sin. The problem of the world is sin and death that's overcome through the double gift, the two hands of God, if you like, the gift of Christ and the gift of the Spirit. Amen. Thank you, John. Um, before we sing this next song, which basically is echoing um, and surrendering to God um, our life and to live a life of the Spirit, uh, I encourage right now uh, just to take some time um, to think through and um, if there's any sin that is in your life that you need to confess so that you can have more freedom in singing this next song. Um, I encourage you to do that right now.
Thank you, Lord, um, for reminding us through John Taylor that you have um, came and gave your only Jesus, only one, only son, Jesus, to save us, God. And because of that, we can live a life of freedom. We don't have to live a life of sin. God, I ask, Lord, that um, we, each of us, surrenders to the Spirit, surrenders to you, to welcome him into our lives so that we can live a life of freedom. Um, as we wait for your second coming, God, I thank you and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who am I that the highest king would welcome? I was lost, but he brought me in of oh, his Shout 